This morning, beginning in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Verse 12, Titus chapter 2, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, Paul encourages Titus, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. In this life, we experience hardships. I wonder how many of you know anything about that. And we go through these things and these experiences where we're brought to the end of ourselves, our own abilities. We're also, from a spiritual standpoint, where we're also demanded to grow up, to grow up spiritually. There comes a point in every Christian's life where you have to grow up, where you have to know what you believe. See, when we're not mature in the Lord and when we have not yet grown up spiritually, we rely on other people to take care of things. You know, it's just like when you're a kid growing up, you relied on your mom or you relied on your dad. But then it got to a certain point where now you needed to take care of yourself. In the church and with Christianity, often we can look to certain individuals and say, you know, I believe what they believe. And we might rely on other people and what they believe in, in order for us to believe it. Well, if you believe that, then I'll believe it. And we're spiritual children and not spiritual adults. Now, don't get me wrong. If you go to a Bible teaching church or if you know somebody is walking with the Lord and they've studied the Bible, you can glean and you can learn, but you cannot vicariously have a relationship with God or faith in God through somebody else's belief or somebody else's relationship. Because what inevitably will happen, and if you've not yet experienced this, you probably will in the future, maybe even sooner than you might think, where inevitably you are forced to look at your own fears, your own doubts, your own struggles straight in the eyes, and those things demand you to work out your own faith. And it won't matter what other people believe or what other people say. It will come down directly to what you believe. What do you know to be true about God's word? What do you know to be true about God's faithfulness or about prayer or about salvation or about the work of the ministry? What do you believe? Because you can hear everybody else's beliefs. You can read and study for yourself what God's word says, but then you cannot apply it. And you can be in a place where you don't own it personally. But something will happen where you will be demanded to own for yourself your own relationship and know what God's word says for yourself. And you have to work out your own faith. In Philippians, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. 
So Paul tells the church that he planted, those that would have considered Paul their spiritual father, he says, I'm not there to watch over you. I'm not over in your community watching over your shoulder. I'm not there holding your hand. I'm not there leading you. You have to be mature spiritually on your own. And that's going to come through knowing what God's word says and working out your own faith. Because if it comes down to it where you're called on the carpet and somebody says, well, tell me what you believe and you try to think about what somebody else's beliefs are in order to communicate what you believe, you'll be in a bad spot. That's why our goal here at this church is not to make followers of individuals, but a follower of one, and that is Jesus. And to know what God's word says so that you might own it for yourself. So he says, work out your own salvation because God has a great plan for your life. He's created you and it is his will for you to do great things and to know his word and to know him personally. And this is a gift that's been given to each of you, to us, where we can personally know the God who created the universe, who sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to forgive us of our sins, who knows us better than everybody, who thinks the smallest detail of our life is the most important thing, and we can come to him with anything that we're wrestling with. And he won't think, oh, what's this guy's problem? Or, boy, she's just a, a real piece of work, isn't she? No, no, God welcomes us with open arms. The things you're struggling with, the things that you're working through, the things happening in your marriage, in your personal life, at school, dealing with loneliness or depression. Maybe you, you're lacking some good friends and you're having a hard time in that area or maybe, you know, whatever it might be, God knows and you can come to him. But often is the case, and I think in California, in the United States of America, we can kind of bury our heads in the sand a little bit when it comes to owning our own faith and having our own relationship with the Lord. It can't be, oh, Pastor Garrett said this, so I believe it. You actually have to know what God's word says and have your own faith. So as God has begun this work in your life, it's your job to work out. And when you start working out, and maybe you started back in January and you wanted to get in better you know, shape this year and you, know, you started training at the gym and, and you started working out. And if you've ever started working out, that start, that start point is the, is the hardest thing to get over, just getting the ball rolling. You know, just like anything that, that requires effort and commitment. And, and it can be a hard thing to, to start exercising. But when you start training and you start working out, you realize what a struggle it actually is. And you realize also why you never wanted to do it in the first place. Also, I think maybe this might be a little bit more of a machismo thing for men. When they start working out, you realize that you're not as strong as you thought you were. Or, you know, the weight that you're trying to move is a lot heavier than you thought it was going to be. And then you ask this question. What do I do when I feel like I'm going to die? What do I do when I feel like I'm incapable of saving myself? I'm not able to be as strong as I needed to be. You know, during COVID, I built out a home gym in my garage, and I'm convinced that that is where dad strength is forged. The garage. For generations, dads have moved weights in the garage. And when everything was shut down, we built out this tiny little uh, gym on one half of our, our garage. 
And one day, and it might have been a Monday, which is National Bench Press Day, I was doing bench press in my garage, and I got stuck. And it was crushing my chest as I laid there, and I was able to squeak out a, help! And thank God, Ruth and Hudson were in the kitchen right off the, off the, the, the garage there. And they came and they ran out and they helped me get that weight off my chest. They helped me get out from underneath that weight that was crushing my lungs. And there were two distinct experiences that I felt and I can still remember them very clearly this day. During that workout, I experienced number one, fear, and number two, trembling. And that's the truth. The fear of being stuck under a weight that I could not move and the trembling of my strength being absolutely exhausted trying to move it. And there's a physical truth that states that the more you exercise at a given moment, the greater your decline of energy and strength will be and the greater the incline of your fatigue. And this is an important I would even say very important illustration to understand an even more important spiritual truth. Because the weight of sin is greater than any of us can bear. Sin is like adding plates to the 45 pound bar, you know, a 10 pound here or an extra five pounder there or, you know, a 65 pounder on both sides. And the more you try to lift it, the weaker you will become and the greater the crushing upon your chest. And you'll get to the point where you were like me and you're lucky to squeak out a help, save me. But then insert the grace of God. God's grace not only lifts the weight of sin off of our chest, but removes it completely. He saves you from your sin. As it says in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God for each of us. And it is a gift, the greatest gift ever given. And so with that in mind and in the context of Paul, as you remember from last week, speaking to those that were in slavery and for what we know of what Jesus said about sin from John 8, verse 34, where Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. We read now again, verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That grace, God's grace, God's grace alone brings salvation to sinful man. You know, it's interesting in the Greek language there, this word for appeared is epiphino. And it really is where we get our word epiphany, where something is illuminated, something is shined upon, something is made visible that wasn't visible beforehand. And so why is verse 11 so important that God's grace would be illuminated or visible, made visible to sinful man? Why would that be so important? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you can turn there quickly, you can catch up to where I'll be reading. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, which is one of the theme verses for our church before we planted it. It says in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 4, But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 
whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. That was one of the things that popped up as far as having vision for our city, the city of Irvine, where we lived. That people would not only have a vision for their own city and reaching their community, but those that were without Christ would have spiritual sight granted to them. That they might be able to see as the gospel, it tells us, is veiled or, or the people are blinded to the glorious news of the gospel. And so when we read now here in Titus chapter two, in verse 11, where it says that this grace of God has now appeared or now has been illuminated, has now been made visible. We understand that this is only possible through the mighty work of God in breaking the chains of bondage that people are in. The spiritual blinders have been now removed and they're able to see clearly who Jesus is. Man is blinded by his own sin. And he's also blinded to his own personal need for a savior, Jesus. And so today, when you go to the store or when after church is over and you go to lunch, maybe you hit up a restaurant that you like or wherever your journeys may take you this week, the Bible tells us that Satan has devised a plan to blind men from seeing the grace of God through Jesus. So as your server puts your food down, if they don't know Jesus, the Bible tells us Satan wants them blinded to the truth of the gospel. When you go to Ralph's and you check out your groceries and you know the person standing there, maybe you do the self-checkout and they're just standing there. If they don't know Jesus, the Bible tells us that Satan wants them to stay blinded to the truth of the gospel. This should illuminate all of us in understanding that the spiritual battle is real. So from the kids that are at your elementary schools, your children that are in elementary school and those other children and parents, their teachers, the youth, the young adults, all the rest. Satan would love for them to be blinded to recognizing their own sin as being sin and blind them from the one who came to forgive them of their sins. In Matthew chapter four, verse 16, listen to this and I'll read it slowly. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. This is speaking of the work of Jesus. This grace that has appeared to all men through Jesus Christ. For those of us here today that have faith in Jesus and have been able to see our sin for what it is, enough to bring us to the point of repenting and asking God to save us from a weight that was greater than we can bear. The Lord tells us in his word that the blinders have been taken off. And so that grace that has appeared to us and that we have received, we see now in verse 12 how it plays itself out, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In the context of the culture that we're looking at today, a slave would know about slavery. A slave would know about having a terrible or terrific master. And there's not a worse master 
than sin. And see, what was so revolutionary about the message of the gospel is it gave those that were slaves to sin the freedom to disobey the lusts of the flesh. You now, though you are a slave to sin, as Jesus said, he who sins is a slave to sin, you were now given the ability to say, no, I will not do that. See, somebody that was in slavery would understand that what the master said, you did. And if you did not do it, there would be very, a very, very bad price to pay. But if you look at this from a spiritual standpoint, now all of us who have been freed from sin, we no longer have to listen to what the lusts of the flesh tell us to do, our sinful nature. We don't have to say, okay, I will do that. Jesus gave you the power to say, no, I will not sin against the Lord. No, I will not go against his commands. No, I will not give in to the lusts of the flesh or the lusts of the eyes or the pride of life. I have been set free. When your sinful nature and its appetites urge you to feed them, you can say no as you starve them. When your sinful nature tells you that you're to respond to your spouse in such a way that is hurtful, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to not do so. When your kids are not listening, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to not discipline in anger. When somebody's rubbing you the wrong way, you don't have to give in and act just like them. Listen to what Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we're now living according to the word of God. My worldview is through the lens of the word of God. And we have found that through faith in Jesus, a separation has occurred. A separation between the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the Holy Spirit. A separation between those that are without faith and those that have been sanctified or set apart or stand out from the rest of the world through faith in Jesus. And now there is a notable distinction between thoughts that please the Lord and thoughts that are displeasing to him. And you can recognize now, wow, that was not of the Lord. That thought that came in, I know that was not from him. How do I know that? Because I know what God's word says and I have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now I recognize that which is of the Lord and that which is not of the Lord. The world does not have that. The world serves Satan. Everything that the world is about is fueled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's been the same since the Garden of Eden It was the same thing that Satan tempted Jesus with before he began his earthly ministry. And it's the same three things that you wrestle with today. So now there is a noticeable distinction between actions, attitudes, and appetites of the sinful nature. And then you, the new creation in Christ. The very first thing that we read here in verse 12 is this word teaching the teaching of God's word. It's so important for a healthy relationship with the Lord. 
It's actually very important. The teaching of God's word, the reading of God's word, the application of God's word is actually very important for your relationship with yourself. How you view who you are and also how you view and interact those, with those around you. And if you've been with us since the beginning of this letter of Paul to Titus, you would see that Titus stands out from those that taught people things that led them away from the Lord. He stood out from those that were labeled false teachers of false doctrine by actually teaching sound doctrine. That was the distinction in his life. His faith and what he did distinguished himself from those that were without faith. And then those who listened to him, those that he taught, who held fast to the word of God, they would now in return live standout lives from those that lived according to the rules of the world and the lusts of the sinful nature. So the Holy Spirit in your life today at work in you, enables you, and the word of God trains you, trains you to deny ungodliness, to say no to worldly lusts, to live soberly, righteously, and godly. The negative that we see here is ungodliness and worldly, worldly lusts. Ungodliness speaks of our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with our sinful nature. So as a follower of Jesus, we reject anything that is against God and anything that is of our sinful nature. For those of you here this morning that may be wrestling with sin, and maybe there's something in your life and, and you're, you're really fighting through this, back and forth, and there's a war happening, and you're wrestling with this sin. That sin and the power that it has over you is directly related to your relationship with the Lord. And so I have to ask you, are you in prayer? Do you have a strong devotional life? Are you spending time in the word of God? Those that have a strong prayer life and a strong devotional life find that the spiritual battle is a lot different from those that have neither of those things. If you're praying and if you're in the word of God, you will find that denying the lusts of the flesh and ungodliness is easier than when you are not in the word of God and when you're not in prayer. If you're not in prayer, if you're not in the word of God, you will struggle with the lusts of the flesh. In Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 2, it says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So if you deny ungodliness, and if you deny worldly lusts, you will be able to live soberly, righteously, and godly. That's what we want. Have you ever noticed how sin in your life can get you to think very unclearly? How it clouds your judgment. How it 
negatively affects your emotions. Sin in your life will bring confusion. It'll bring problems. You can't compartmentalize sin. But if you deny sin, as hard as it may be in that moment, the Lord will never allow you to be tested beyond that which you're able to bear. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You have been given the power to say no to sin. And if you deny sin, you will find that there is such clarity of thought and wisdom that will replace that sin. And I would even encourage you that if you are wrestling with sin and it's hard for you, and as you deny it, that you would ask the Lord to replace those lusts of the flesh with things that are after his heart. And may it even be clarity of thought and wisdom, power, joy, direction. And you'll find that the Lord will take those areas of your life that Satan would love to stuff with sin and he'll replace it with the fruits of the spirit that are so much better than you could ever imagine. And it's such a blessing. And when you open the word of God, and that's why it's important for you to be reading it, the word of God pierces through the fog, and I would even say the spiritual inebriation of sin. We're able to think clearly and see things for what they are. And when I'm thinking with spiritual clarity, I will live with spiritual purity. And when I'm living with spiritual purity, I will be thinking with spiritual clarity. And it's just a really nice circle to be in. Good things come from good things. The Lord honors those who honor him. And that spiritual purity is directly linked to godliness or being Christ-like. When I'm thinking clearly, living purely, and being godly, I'm looking to the Lord and for the Lord in every situation of my life. And here you'll see that played out nicely in verse 13 where he writes, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here in verse 13, you should highlight this or make a little star next to it because this is one of the most powerful descriptions of Jesus being equal and God equal with and truly God in the New Testament. Our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here also in verse 13 is a powerful insight as to where our hope is found, which is in none other than our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is coming again to the earth to take his church home. The other day, Harrison we were talking, and I think it's so important, you know, to spend time with your kids and to have good conversations with them. You know, Harrison's five now, as many of you know, because when he turned five, I told you guys all last year, he said, there's now a five-year-old in the house, Dad. I said, I know. And every morning, he wakes up, and he comes into my room, and he says, I think I grew. I'm like, let's go measure you downstairs. And so he stands up on that little wall where we have all marked up with our pencil of all of our kids and how tall they are every year. And I measure him like, Harry, you're right. You grew an eighth of an inch last night. I don't know how this is happening. 
But he asked me when we were talking, he said, why did Jesus have to go back to heaven? Because he knew that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And, you know, some of the finest people that serve at our church are in our children's ministry. And my own kids are being blessed because of it. And it's really one of the pillars of our church. Outside of teaching and worship, this children's ministry. And they teach our kids such great things. And he comes home singing his songs and all these things that I think are such a blessing. But he asked me, he said, I know Jesus died on the cross. I know on the third day he rose again. But then he ascended into heaven. I'm like, do you know what ascended means? And he knew that he went back up to heaven. And so I told him, I said, Harry... Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, that where I am, there you may be also. I said, Jesus is getting a place ready for you and for me. And even as he went, and you remember that story, as he went into heaven, he's coming again. And so when Paul writes to Titus and says, we're looking to our great God and Savior. We had this appearance, this epiphany, this enlightenment, this this which was blinded to some was now made visible. Even as Jesus came, he will come again. Because if he went, he's coming again and we look forward to that day. And in verse 14, it says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And here we see some very specific ways of describing those that have been set free from the slavery of sin. Don't forget what we discussed last week. Jesus gave himself for us. In Mark 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. To give himself for you and for me. And sometimes in church, because we've grown up with it or we become accustomed to it, we forget what great price, the great price that Jesus paid, he took our place. He paid the price for sin so that we wouldn't have to. And so when you're at your home or when you're driving in your car or you're wrestling with your thoughts or working out your faith, you can never forget that you were a slave to sin and God has set you free. You don't have to go back to the old ways of the world. The world will always be welcoming you with open arms. Hey, where have you been? We've missed you. Come on back. Those websites will always be waiting for you. That old group of friends will always be waiting for you. The old lifestyles will always be waiting for you. But you've been given freedom. You've been given the power that when that enticement comes or that temptation presents itself, that you can say, no, I don't serve you. I serve the Lord. I don't serve the lust of the flesh. I serve the Lord. So I can tell you, no. And even when your flesh is crying out, yes, feed me. You know that if you give in to sin, you're not going to feel good. You know that you're going to be returning to something that God had set you free from. 
Don't forget the feeling of what happens after you give in to sin. And it's better not to give in to it. It's better to say no. Acts 4 verse 12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus became our substitute. He paid our price for our sin, which was death. As the Bible says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a blessing. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he redeemed us. He set us free from slavery. Again, in the context of our study of Paul's letter to Titus, sin would no longer be the master of our lives. The slaves there would understand this picture perfectly. I become now a slave of righteousness. I'm no longer controlled by that wicked, evil taskmaster sin. It was God's grace that saved me. He lifted me out of the miry clay. Sin is no longer the master of my life. Sin leaves a trail of collateral damage in broken people wherever it finds a home. And it will move on to the next thing and to the next thing, even as if you try to keep it in one area of your life, it will move to every area of your life. That's why you have to exercise the power that Jesus has given you and say no to the lusts of the flesh because sin would no longer be the master of our lives. And how would we know this to be true? Well, if you look back in verse one of Titus 2, Paul encouraged Titus by saying, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Speaking in such a way, Titus would communicate the truth so that it stood out from the lie. If there was ever a moment in history where we needed to know what the truth is, it's now. Because right now, there are 15 million different truths and they all contradict each other except for one. And that is the truth in God's word. The truth in God's word stands out from every other religion, every other spiritual you know, influence. Because people can be spiritual, but not know God. But because of sound doctrine, because of the word of God, Titus would stand out. And then those who heard the truth. Do you remember what it was like before you came to know the Lord? Do you know even what it's like now when you wrestle with the lies of Satan that discourage you and distract you and try to bring you down? And you're like, why am I so influenced by something that is not of God? You recognize it. That is a lie from Satan. Why am I engaging this? Why am I embracing it? Why am I entertaining something that is a fiery dart from the wicked one? Why? 
How are you even able to say, why am I doing something that I know is wrong if you don't know that it's wrong? See, the word of God actually brings you truth. It brings you clarity and it distinguishes between that which is of God and that which is not. In Romans 6, verses 17 through 18, it says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of what? Guess what he says? Doctrine. The teaching of God's word to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. If we don't have the word of God, we have no way of knowing what is what. Now on Sunday mornings, granted, it may be like drinking from a fire hose and we just, this is the word of God and it's a lot. And we're hoping to supplement that with our house groups starting in the fall. But for the time being on Sunday mornings, we're gonna look to God's word because God word, God's word brings life. And it says in verse 14 again, who gave himself for us, that's Jesus, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself his own special people who would be zealous for doing good. So those things that we did, our actions that were against God's laws, those spiritual laws of God, he redeemed us and he forgave us and he purified us. Now, this is important for some of you to understand as well. For those of you that might've been deep, deep, deep in the world, and you came out of it from whatever lifestyle that may have been. You're going to wrestle with now having the understanding that what you did was wrong. And as you grow in your understanding of who God is and what his word says, you will feel disgusted about certain things in your life and that also Satan will use your now knowledge of what is evil and he'll try to discourage you with it. Prior to you coming to faith in Jesus, he was the one encouraging you. Hey, yeah, go for it. It's all good. You know, if, you know, speak your truth and live your life and do your thing. Get ahead. Look out for number one. Go for it. And then you come to faith in Jesus. And now he says, how could you do those things? You terrible, sinful person. Partying sleeping around, foul language, drugs, self-centered, stepping on people. Look at all that stuff. I mean, it was just a normal thing that everybody did in the world. And Satan was making it all happen. But now you've come to this place where you realize, where you said, Lord, save me. I've sinned. But you cannot stop there. That place where Satan now wants to throw up in your face all of your mistakes, you have to understand that God sees them no more. That he has purified you from all sin, everything, even the things that you look back in hindsight and wonder, how could I have done that? Or I know that that was so wrong. God has forgiven you and he has cleansed you and you are a new creation in Christ. And there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so if you're wrestling with some of the things that you might be carrying around with, you know, as spiritual baggage, 
and Satan's throwing it in your face, please understand what we're reading today. He gave himself for you. He redeemed you from your lifestyle of sin. Every lawless deed, if you look at verse 14, everything that you did that was against God, he has now purified you. He's forgiven you and he's purified you. That may have been your past, but Jesus is your future and he's given you a future and a hope. And furthermore, the Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So live no longer after the lusts of the flesh, but walk according to the Holy Spirit. And so when we're purified and set apart as his own special people, he makes us zealous to do things that are good. That's why even in the origin story of our own country, all of our universities started out as Bible schools. All of our elementary schools were teaching the Bible. All the hospitals that we've seen built were by Christians. Because God makes his people zealous to do good. I want to do good. I want to bless somebody. Small little things like you're in the Starbucks drive through line and you pay for the person's coffee behind you. When you're out and about and you help somebody in the name of Jesus or help them give, you know, fill up their, their gas tank if they're running low or, or whatever it might be, somebody's sick and you send them some Mediterranean food or whatever it might be. We want to do good. Because the Lord has willed it and he's created you that way in your new spiritual life. That's why it doesn't feel good to have all of these blessings from the Lord and to just sit on them. You become stagnant, become self-centered, and you're not fulfilling God's call upon your life. But when you give of yourself and when you go and do good and you break a little bit of a sweat and then you do something that costs you something and you do it in the name of Jesus, there is such a reward. And so finally in verse 15, Paul writes, speak these things, exhort, encourage them, rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. For your own biblical knowledge, Titus was a teacher of teachers. He was an appointer of overseers in the church. He was a guy that led leaders. He could not refrain from engaging culture as God's ambassador, nor could he from engaging the people under his care, where he would have the tough conversations. He would talk about the tough issues all through the instruction of God's word. And sometimes... You may just feel like not dealing with the problems that you need to deal with by having a tough conversation. Maybe you're a leader, maybe you're a pastor, maybe you're in some place of influence and you're catching a lot of flack for speaking the word of the Lord or by living according to it. Maybe you've thought to yourself, even coming into church today, that you've had it, had it. You're just getting beat down. I've had it. I'm not doing it any longer. I'm quitting. It reminded me of what Jeremiah said, and maybe this will resonate with you. 
Jeremiah, one of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament, who, by the way, never had one convert. He did not see a lot of fruit from his ministry. Some people today would say, you have a very uh, puny, non-global reaching ministry, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, you know what? People aren't even listening to me. I'm not speaking it anymore. I'm not saying the word of the Lord. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to mind my own business. I'm done. And he says in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, he says, I will not make mention of him. I'm not going to talk about God. Maybe you feel like that. He says, nor speak anymore in his name. I'm tired. I've had it. It's too hostile out there. But this is what he says. And if you're truly filled with the Holy Spirit, I think this will resonate with you where he says, but God's word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. He had to speak. He had to do. He was zealous about the work of the Lord. And it cost him. He was persecuted. He was arrested. He was thrown into a, you know, a, a sinking mire of, a, of an old well where he thought he was going to die. And he would have if he had not been rescued out. So Titus was to teach sound doctrine. He was to encourage the church, even as I'm encouraging you today, to live holy and to encourage the world. The, this word exhort means to encourage. Encourage those that are without faith to repent from their sins. He was to rebuke those that were in error for their own good. It's so easy to dismiss people, to write them off, to be like, I'm done with you. I'm not even gonna have this conversation. Stop abdicating responsibility. Stop being passive. If you truly believe that what you're doing is of God and if you truly care for that person and you have the relationship by which to communicate in such a way in love, then stop avoiding it. Titus was to have the tough conversations and to teach straight through the word of God. And through his ministry, as he walked holy before the Lord, he didn't give the enemy any ammunition to say anything bad about him. Because listen, the enemy of our souls, Satan, who's like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. For those of us that live close to the beach, it might even be a better visual to say he's like a great white shark seeking whom he may devour. Anything that can be exploited in your life, anything that can be taken advantage of, he will utilize. That's why you stay Focused on the Lord. That's why you hold fast to what God's word says. That's why you don't become the next victim. You say no to the lusts of the flesh. You spend time in the word of God. You know what it says. What are you going to do if your pastor's not there? When your spiritual mom or dad are not there. I believe that often there are cases where it's incumbent upon those that have learned from somebody to now take the mantle and to do what they were taught and then to pass that down to somebody else. And what a blessing for Titus. Let no one speak evil of you. Don't give them anything to say evil about you because the enemy's going to look for something. 
And as the Lord is your defense, walk purely before him. And so as we close, and really I just hope that this encapsules really what we've been studying. Stand out teaching from the Bible leads to stand out living in the church and a stand out witness for the Lord in the world. How to be a standout. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Teach the Bible. Apply it to your life. Receive from the Lord and be an ambassador for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this place that we can call our church home. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to move among your people. Give us ears continually, not just on Sunday mornings, but every day of the week to hear your voice. Speak to us. Reveal yourself to us. Help us to be holy as you are holy. And Lord, I ask for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit to be upon each man and woman that is here today or that is watching this from some other place. Meet each person exactly where they're at, Lord, and I ask that you would give them fresh vision, that they would see with great spiritual clarity, give them understanding, especially if things have been clouded emotionally. Lord, I ask that they'd be able to see through those things and honor you, looking to you, and for you in every situation. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you need prayer for anything today, our prayer team will be available on my right, on your left here, on just the right side of our stage. We'd love to pray for anything that it is that you might need prayer over. If you have questions about anything that's happening with this church, about house groups, if you want to get involved with either hosting or leading or being a part of a house group, you can head over to the info table after service. And then finally, just may the Lord bless you today. And may he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus' name. 